Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. All right, today we're lucky to have Lucas Jaden. He's a performance coach and member of Train to Be Clutch. He's worked with Major League Baseball teams, Fortune 500 companies, NCAA teams, including my own team, LMU. And he's also just an all-around great guy. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you very much, guys. Uh, really grateful to be here. Well, we're grateful to have you. So today we wanted to talk about um, a little bit of the darker side of, of sport. I know it's something you call the dungeon moments, the fearful, challenging times in sport. Can you start out by telling us why our brain responds this way in something so fun like sport? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I'm a full believer in the reason we get into sport is to experience the highest emotions that we possibly can, the highest amounts of joy, um, connection. And when we risk going all into that, uh, we risk what we call at times the darker side or um, the setback, the frustration that comes with it. And for me, it's uh, getting into this was kind of a, a personal pursuit. And so if we back it up uh, kind of to my high school years, I, on, on the outside, I had a lot of things going as an athlete, as a student. Um, but inside was a mental challenge. Uh, I was what many would call OCD. I had uh, a mind that was like a hamster on a wheel that would just never stop to the point where I was probably sleeping about three to six hours a night. And you just can't go that long. And so finally, as a, as a high school dude, it's pretty scary, but to go see a dreaded counselor. And uh, at yeah. the time, it kind of, uh, I don't know if the counselor necessarily helped me, but what I realized was that there was a lot of stuff out there that my coaches didn't know about the mental side of the game, that my parents didn't know, even though they were incredibly loving and supportive. Uh, but I could train as hard as I want wanted physically, and yet this mental side just uh, really limited me. And so I uh, kind of took off into my quest on a personal uh, level and then started to realize the work that I was getting into wasn't just me. And so that's where the language of um, navigating the dungeon days uh, came up. And and so it's kind of where it started. And so the dungeon days are obviously the opposite of what I call the penthouse days. And so um, I know you guys are, are just huge uh, LMU with the motor development and growth mindsets. And so three years ago, I started, that was kind of the, the beginning of my teaching around the mental training was uh, growth mindsets, grit, uh, all of these words that I just, and ideas that I love. And so we have a phrase that train to be clutch that we use as our highest standard called true mental toughness. And we basically say it's treating people well, uh, giving your best, bringing a great attitude, and having unconditional gratitude. And so I can I call it the kind of the day that things changed for me when I realized that this dungeon and Pentel's thing was at the really at the core because I had just got done doing a workshop uh, the night before. And then at the time I was still uh, I was teaching middle school. And uh, do either of you have middle school kids? No, thankfully, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet, but they're coming. They will come, yes. And so uh, so I get done teaching this workshop, and it's all about 
true mental toughness and developing the mindsets. And we dug into the fix for his growth. And there was this one student, this was when uh, Cam Newton had uh, made it to the Super Bowl, right? And so, well, I don't know if you guys really follow football, but what did, any idea what, in your eyes, what Cam Newton made famous, what move? Or was it a scrambling? <laughs> no, I don't know. Have you heard of the dab? You guys going to say a celebration? Uh, yeah, yeah, you got no. it. So this dab thing, and for anybody that's listening, they probably, they may or may not know. So he makes a celebration popular. In the middle school world, it absolutely took over. And basically, it's like this, this very short celebration where you just kind of dip your head into uh, your elbow socket. And uh looks really dorky, but because he was doing it, every middle schooler was taking it on. And this one student, it was his go-to move at all times. He was my most frustrating kid. Um, and so I get back from this workshop really late, have school the next day, and walk in. And this kid, uh, he could just, we'll call him Ryan, but he could really push anybody to the limit. And usually I had a really good plan. I modeled what I preached and, you know, I would use proximity, use great language, praise, and give feedback as what we believed in. But this one day, so I come in, he's making snow angels on my floor uh, in the middle, just in the middle of class. And so I walk up to him like, all right, uh, Ryan, we've discussed this. I'm like taking my breaths. And uh, he jumps up very quickly. He's one of those kids that's just all over the place, runs towards the door. um, And the whole class now is watching, like, how is Mr. Jaden going to respond? And it was one of those door handles that kind of goes out to the to the side where you have to really open it all the way to be able to open up. And he had it only opened up halfway. And so he's going to the door to open it and he looks back at me to just give it to me one more time. He kind of, he was an emotional kid. He didn't really think things through uh, and would just yell it. And he's going, Mr. Jaden, you're such a, and before he goes out the door that he thought he had open, he turns to kind of run, just smokes himself off the door, falls flat back on the floor. <laughs> And so now all my students are looking towards him like, oh, my goodness, I'm over here on the other side and all I can manage is this dab. And so I just dab in front of the whole class. And uh, it's a ridiculous move. If you look it up, Um, (laughs) totally immature. Uh, I don't know what Carol Dweck would say about that type of feedback, Um, but I'm lucky at my initial mode was, oh, my God. Like, my first thought is, like, he deserved it. But then as I kind of, like, went back to my seat, it was, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> like, you, you are broken. Like, last night you were teaching true mental toughness, and now today show up uh, and dab on a kid. And so at that moment, it was just so clear that the root of all of this, uh, that from my belief of the idea of seeing growth mindsets, of taking a risk, uh, taking on challenges, having kids that are open is almost a symptom to things that are different. And that's where the, the dungeon, the penthouse was born. And I believe when we wake up in these penthouse days, it's, uh, it's like wearing glasses that are clear and we see things as they are. We can navigate frustrating kids uh, pretty seamlessly because why we got into this in the first place, to be able to help them. But on the dungeon days, we could almost do the same thing we did the day before, but we wake up and it's cluttered. There's chaos. We're annoyed more easily. Uh, Sometimes we call these days Mondays. But um, And in these days, it's like wearing glasses that are so crap-stained that we can barely see through them um, to make it 
make it through. And so what I do with athletes is dig into, hey, I know that you want to have a growth mindset. You want to control the controllables. Uh, and we can all do that in the penthouse. But what's holding you back in the dungeon days? And, and how do we navigate those? And I guess, yeah, what would your advice be? How do, as athletes do we do we get out of the dungeon? Yeah. So, um, and, you know, the second part of John's question was with the brain. And, and I think that's where we dig into it. So the first part is with athletes is knowing when we go into those states, uh, what are we, wh- how are we going to react? And so what are those states in the first place? So I've asked a lot of kids, I think I've had about 20,000 responses to this question. What does the dungeon look like to you? Um, and I'm just going to read kind of five examples, and then um, you guys got to pull out what you see as consistencies. So cool. the dungeon to me is uh, – you know, let me get it up. All right. The dungeon is going all into something, always being looked at as the leader, but never feeling like I'm enough. Going to bed at night, wondering if I really fit into the group. We put on the faces like we're great teammates, but then I'm always wondering what people are saying behind my back. I worry about my weight and what I look like among my teammates. My parents have ridiculous high expectations. This playing used to be a game. Now it feels more like a job. I just got a Division I scholarship. Should be the best time of my life. I think it's just the best time of my dad's life. It's really hard to always have to look like you have it together. I never know what coach is thinking about me, and it constantly feels like a weight on my shoulder. Anxiety, the constant worry of what other people are thinking. So I kind of pulled those because they were just very similar to what I get. But So from your experience, what did you guys hear? That kind of was a, a common thread. Well, it seemed like almost all of it was, what do other people think about me? Yeah. Would you agree with that, Billy? Yeah, yeah. There's expectations, what they think. Yeah, and so the crazy thing is, is when you ask, like, how do we help with that? It's number one, the first thing is, well, what's wrong with the dungeon? So um, I I don't know if one of you want to kind of share, but what was the last time when I say experience the dungeon, what's the last time that one of you felt it? Um, I had a rough tournament in Florida, and – Maybe just my usual dramatic self afterwards. I just felt like, why am I doing this? Is it really worth it? Um, I, yeah. get, I get a normal job, <laughs> guaranteed paycheck, and so much more, you know, so much easier. Um, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the thoughts after a, a bad loss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those thoughts are are again connected to because what would it mean if you got a real job? Uh, I feel like I would be quitting. Okay. And why would, at that dungeon moment, why would that be the way out? Um, yeah, I think part of it is, I mean, just tying into what the dungeon moment part would be my expectation, other people's expectations on how good, how we looked like not qualifying and, you know, we were better than that and just kind of felt like a, yeah, didn't live up to what we should have done. Yeah. And how old are, Billy, do you mind if I ask how old you are? Yeah. 36. Still suffering. Yeah. Right. Inside, like uh, when we go to the dungeon moments, it's tying into our vulnerabilities and like 36 year old, you should have a real job by now. (laughs) And and so uh, the first thing is just understanding that by signing up for being an athlete or going all into something, 
we have to navigate the dungeon. Now, what that looks like is a little bit different for everybody, but it is interesting whether I'm working with MLB people, a stay-at-home mom, a um, uh, a seventh grader, or just somebody, uh, a CEO, it always comes back to um, what other people think. And so a lot of that, I don't know um, how in-depth you guys go on the brain end, but helping kids understand that that thought, what you just talked about in the dungeon moment, is not a, a sign of something's wrong. It's a sign of you're human. And we kind of got to roll it back a long ways to understand the very basics of how our brain is built to help uh, our athletes understand just why we get those uh, that self-doubt. We call them gremlins from Brene Brown. But um, so if you uh, if you kind of roll it way back to, I don't know, 50,000 plus years ago, uh, if we imagine uh, caveman uh, John out there just rolling around, uh, John, what would your average day look like? Uh, my average day would be, what, hunting for food and water and making sure I have shelter. Yeah, pretty simple, right? Chasing uh, caveman Paula. <laughs> yeah, caveman. yeah, my caveman wife. Caveman. Out on the prowl, caveman wife. Uh, yeah. and, it, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it was, it's pretty simple. It's survival, and it's making it there. And the one thing that feeds survival is fear. And so I like to call it the, the five F's, like what you're working for. Number one is food. But if all of a sudden John is out there on the prowl and he comes across a, a fresh saber tooth tiger track, um, well, maybe John's not the exact example because he might go right into fight mode of like, I'll take it. No, <laughs> but, I'd run. Uh, I'd run. Mo most people are going to go into flight mode right away. Uh, so flight mode first, let's get the hell out of here and avoid the risk. Uh, if I cross paths and have to fight, then it becomes that. Uh, but when we run and, and we're going to run back to a group, what was the power of, at that time, what was the power of the tribe or the group? Safety. Yeah, safety safety in numbers. And so it's such a basic thing that most of us know. And so we, we, clam we clamor for that group to have it for the safety because if that tiger comes back, we got a chance. Um, but now if the chief of our village is there and decides that John's been cocking off too much or has been, a, you know, has a little bit of attitude and he's going to kick him out, unless he's Jason Bourne, like, you are done. Uh, and so we've been hardwired to really toe the line, to not have tough conversations that might uh, uh disappoint people or frustrate people and so today um fast forward to where we are now we have this big beautiful brain that's allowed us to communicate on high levels to take risks to think about the future and also analyze the past but we still operate with what we call in uh the lizard brain as that reactive part of our brain and we have to manage it and so this fear-based part of our brain drives so much of uh, what we do that when we get into the weeds of the dungeon moments, it's where it full heartedly comes alive. And it's different for everybody. Like your gremlins, Billy, might be different because of your exact situation uh, versus mine. But they always tend to come back to a where I should be at. We have this made up kind of thing of based on when we were growing up of who the person we should be. Uh, and anytime we push that comfort zone 
with our lizard brain, uh, it's wanting comfort. And so when we push the comfort zone, it's going to do anything possible to get the nine to five job, to slow down and get consistency because uncertainty pisses the lizard off. <laughs> and um, so when you go back to with kids, the first or with athletes of any age, to me, it's asking, is this a threat or is it a challenge? And the, that lizard brain is going to engage in either one of those. But if it's a challenge, if we view it as a challenge, we can funnel the good that it has to offer. Hmm. So should we, I mean, it seems like something like expectations is a big part of this lizard brain, and mm-hmm. but also a very common thing for any sort of athlete. So should we not have expecta- expectations? Should we try to suppress those? What are your thoughts on that? Can you give me an example of an expectation you have for yourself? Um... Sure. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think one is to to improve. Yeah. But um, I think, like, you know, one that I would rather not ad- like to admit is to win more than Billy or to win more than, you know, X player. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But if I was answering in a um, way that I'd like to answer it, yeah, I'd say, yeah, expectation for me is to get better. Yeah. And, and so I, I view there's a big difference between standards and expectations. Um, expectations are interesting to me because it's a hard finger to put your line on of, well, how good should I be? Um, like, I don't want to set it too, too high, but I don't want to set it too, too low. And so to me, we always fall back on, are your expectations limiting you uh, to the point where you, you're encompassed by fear? And so um, with when we look at the lizard brain, it's all about uh, gaining the psychological safety as the close-knit group to know, hey, I belong. That's where uh, a lot of the best teams that we see that I, I feel, like when I came out to LMU, I look for, does this environment feel safe over, over smarts, you know, over ability, that safety over, and ultimately wins out. And so the crux of it is I think you can have the expectations forever, whatever you would want. But the underlying factor is, are we doing it out of fear of trying to just constantly measure up and get better than the person next to me? Or am I doing it out of, out of trust, out of love for just wanting to grow, uh, not knowing where my end game even is. And Lucas, do you ever see, I mean, this sounds great just to play devil's advocate. Do you ever see that safety leading to complacency if everybody's just maybe too comfortable on the team with just being loved and where they're at at that point? I think when you, when I think about the best um, environments and so to answer your question, I've never met a group. um, I met groups that are too comfortable, um, not necessarily. And I separate comfortable and safety as different. Um, And so I have seen it where groups get too comfortable. We get into the rut, Um, and they don't have that edge because the benefit of the lizard brain, right, is when you get before a match, um, you go out there and you have the benefits of a lizard brain. You have higher cortisol levels. You have some adrenaline pumping, and our focus is narrowed. It allows us to jump and run and do everything faster. And so I've seen teams where comfort becomes the norm. Uh, But the thing about safety is 
I don't believe that we can get too safe because safety allows us to then open up the door to be pushed further. And so um, too comfortable, yes, but too safe, I guess in my brain it's different, but I can see how they correlate. So then if um, you have, especially for a coach, say a coach has an athlete, say it's Billy and he's playing in Florida and he's in, he's in the dungeon and it's mid-match. Yeah. You know, and there's whatever it's, whatever sport it is, you know, you're halfway through it and there's a lot more match to play. How do you, how do you help Billy get out of the dungeon or can you? Yeah. And do you think you can perform well when you're in the dungeon? Uh, yes. What was that? Sorry. You came at the same time. Billy disagrees. I said, yes. And Billy, what do you think? I feel like my initial thought was not my best. I think I can perform yeah. And, and so it ultimately one of the, I just heard a really good sports psychologist that I really appreciate and get a lot from said, are you that bad that you have to feel good all the time in order to play well? And Ken Revisa. Uh, yes, you, you are right. Uh, and, uh, I fully agree with him to the point I've honestly had some of my best days where I went into something stressed, a little bit pissed off feeling that dungeon moment. However, people, everyone's different. And I think, so the core of it with that as a, coming from a coach is number one, we have to lead them into this and knowing a, where am I at? If I'm in the dungeon, how do I navigate through it? Um, And so that just looks like modeling earlier in practices before you get to that moment. Hey, just check your state. Uh, One of the most beneficial things that we have teams doing is before they get into action, just talk about the lens that you're wearing. Are you in the dungeon right now? Are you at level one, two, or are you up in the penthouse? What lens are you seeing the world through right now? Um, And just check. There's not, if you're in the dungeon, that's all right. It's going to take more energy to live up to our standards, but you have to meet our standards yet. Just because you're feeling the dungeon doesn't mean you can gas up, you can be an energy vampire or, you know, use things that aren't who we are. And so it's really a lot of modeling ahead of time and discussing these. But then in match, the kind of the, I use the acronym ABT. It's acknowledge, number one, acknowledge and be aware. I think we've all seen people who have gone weeks in the dungeon and they weren't even really aware of it. Um, And so acknowledge, hey, where am I at? Press pause, which the B is breathe. Breathe, and then third, go back to your training. Trust your training and do the actions and the routines that have gotten you there. So that's in, especially in action, it's acknowledge, breathe, go back to your routines that have been trust, trust your training. What happens if you suppress it? You say, oh, that shouldn't be there. I shouldn't feel that way. Yeah, no, that and that's where I do a lot of work, um, especially in the MLB world because – when you got time to think, sometimes that's the scariest, uh, <laughs> the scariest of times. And what I can see is accumulation. Like if we try to believe that our thinking is fully controllable, it's one of the biggest uh, things that I think set us back is that we can control our full thinking. If you could control your thinking after that match um, that Billy was talking about where he was just having a self-tirade, I would believe if we could fully just turn it off like a snap of the fingers that we would. And, and so 
um, to me, if we have to learn to grab on and let go. And so I view kind of the thoughts. I'm a huge um, proponent proponent of the app Headspace. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I view thoughts like traffic. And, you know, they're coming through for different reasons. And if we see the thought from afar and let it continue to pass through, we have the best chance of getting into a different state. But if we try to stop and wonder, you know, what's wrong with me for having this thought? Wow, what is that? And we give it meaning. It's like standing in front of the traffic. And pretty soon it starts to accumulate uh, and get (laughs) the traffic jam inside of our head, which is the opposite of flow, which is what we're looking for. And so um, what I like to call it is at that point, what turns into an emotional volcano. (laughs) And so if we continue to bottle up and block, you know, this uh, idea of vulnerability of being willing to just explain, yeah, we're going through a tough experience. I have thoughts of self-doubt. I'm wondering if I'm ready enough, if I'm old enough, young enough, blank enough, you can fill it in. If we can process that instead of letting it accumulate, then we avoid um, the breakdowns or what I call the emotional volcano. I understand like as a coach, maybe you see a player that is, you know, in this dungeon moment or having a bad day and it's a good time to address that. But as coaches like framing a practice, is there, do we want to be creating these moments in training um, so that they can respond to that? Or I guess, how would you go about training this with the team? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things first off is when we talk about psychological safety, the the first thing to me is is knowing the person. So every minute you take to fully invest in your athletes, you know their different triggers that will help them navigate the dungeon and um, those that won't. Some of the kids might need a, a kind of a push, you know, a, a, a swift kick in a – non-literal way and other kids need to be really listened to and the only way that you figure that out is by really knowing your kids we uh, I was just working with a a big football program uh, that has over 100 guys in it and their coach went through every single guy and told me about their backstory and when you can do that when you first off know your players or your coaches at that level, then you start to figure out what are their gremlins? You know, what is the trigger points for the lizard brain? What are the those things that are holding them back, kind of the chains that they have on them? And so the first thing is creating space to be able to do that, to process that um, with them. And then, you know, the other thing of how you start framing your practices is, well, what, how do we make it most game-like? So uh, does the environment match, which I know is nothing new for you guys, especially when I visited John. But uh, one of the biggest things that I hear is kind of, uh, you know, one of two things is, one, if we play early in the morning or it takes us a full match to get going or it takes us whatever to get to our level of play, um, my first question is, well, when are you playing in your practices? Because the traditional method is let's get warmed up, let's do skill breakdown, and then let's play at the end. And so um, my first thought is just looking at, you know, how do you regulate energy? Help, how do you help them to acknowledge, here's where I'm at. If I'm in the dungeon, man, it's groggy. It's hard for me to get going. I need to be able to turn it around. And so in practices, it's being um, kind of flexible with where we put our competitive environments uh, during that. 
And so moving that around to model what's going to be needed is the first part. And then the second one or the third one to me is the the big one is just modeling it as a coach, um, modeling that, hey, if we check our states today, we're going to talk in, in partners. All I want you to do is just acknowledge which um, state that you're at and then explain how you're going to have to gain the courage or the energy to reach our standards today. And as a coach saying, look, today I'm, I'm at level one or today's actually a dungeon day. Like my son or daughter didn't sleep last night. I was up all night, I'm a little stressed, but I'm absolutely going to bring it as best I can today. And so doing that just as modeling the tools for our athletes for how we want them to respond. And so that's just a few areas that pop to mind. That was part one with Lucas Jaden. Join us next week for part two as we hear more insights on how to escape the dungeon. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out. The show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. This is part two with Lucas Jaden on how to get through those dungeon moments. What if you see an athlete say, um, yeah, I don't know, before a match, and they're, you can tell they're, they're heading, in, heading south towards the dungeon and they're emotionally worked up. Is that a too sensitive a moment to approach them? I, I mean, I'm sure some of it is getting to know your athlete, but what have you found? Um, do you need to give it some space first, or, or do you get right in there when they're? So, uh, are, are you saying? Did you say before or after? Yeah, the, let's say, but before a match, you know, you're in the warm up and things aren't going right, and you're seeing them not act like themselves, and you wanna yeah. you wanna help them get ready for the match, but they're clearly not in a state to have a conversation. Yeah, and so it's twofold if you're going to look at long-term impact of like helping them grow you know and like hey we need to process this definitely not the right time (laughs) you might have a lizard come out on you at that moment of Mm. of somebody snap or break down and cry if that's how you know how they roll in those situations but um you still have an event to to play and so one of the questions that always interests me like is when coaches before matches like they don't know what to say to their kids, even when they're not in a dungeon mode. So it's kind of that nervous energy and we suck at stillness. And so we fill that stillness up with empty praise. We fill it up with weird stuff that uh, is just kind of filling our, our nerves. And so one of the questions I, I ask kids or athletes is, how are you feeling? And what's interesting is what we're training them to set no is, more than likely they're not feeling great, right? And so um, whether it's nervous, whether it's um, fearful, but what we're training them to use is their feelings as a compass. So don't ignore this. But when I'm in that state, what I can't do is trust usually whatever BS is going through my head. And so our feelings almost direct us to which of those thoughts are most truthful to the person I want to be. And so, um, you know, if I went up to that type of kid, uh, depending on the relationship, obviously, uh, might ask, Hey, how are you feeling? And it might be, you know, I don't know. It could be, I'm, I'm just, I can't get focused. I'm all over the place. Um, 
my all my words would be would be in that moment is all right hey sounds like uh your lizard is active sounds like you're in the dungeon uh trust your training and and it, it's obviously comes out in different ways to different kids but um that to me is kind of where the freedom comes in of trust your training these feelings that you have right now are your compass to the bogus that's in your head isn't what should hold you back you you're way beyond that and so um to kind of wrap up your question it's for long-term growth i like those conversations when they're at a higher state just a little bit more clarity involved but when an event is coming up um making that type of connection is what i've seen work and what do you think about involving like leaders or teammates would they have more success instead of a, a coach you know how can they help in these situations yeah you know i, I really look at um it depends on your kids and hopefully uh, the best teams that I, I've been able to work with are player-led teams. And so they are experts in exactly what that kid is struggling with or athlete is struggling with at the time. And so it could be, uh, you know, especially working um, in the female world, I'll be the first one to say, like, I've coached females for the last seven years, and I'll be the first one to say, I have no idea what some of the challenges are that you have to be able to work through. But I do know who does, and it's your teammates. And so really helping to equip them to be able to um, approach them. And a lot of the times when we know their dungeon is about where do I fit, um, about getting into that the status of the group. And so if one of the teammates can step up and become an anchor point. Uh, and so uh, it's just a kind of a term that we use in the dungeon moments. We want, we would love it if a a helicopter moment would come in where this helicopter comes in and just takes us out of the, the crap out of the dungeon. Uh, but in reality, probably what we absolutely need is people that are anchors um, that let us know that they're here for us, regardless of the situation that um, win or lose or whatever the result is, they're there for us. And so I believe that that is best coming from the teammates specifically. Uh, and so that's kind of the way I look at it. The training comes in and helping the kids with the time ahead to know each other on a deeper level to what can be said or not be said to each other when we're in those, those moments. Lucas, I have a side question. Um, yeah. When you were talking about you know, basically checking in with the player, asking them how they're doing, how they're feeling. Um, it reminded me, I, th I feel like this comes up a lot. I've heard it with coaches and, and players kind of complaining about it. Um, I'm sure the answer is like build a good relationship and be sincere, but I've heard coaches trying to do this stuff where they ask their player like, oh, like, how's it going? How are you feeling? And the kids is just, you know, maybe a teenager just, I'm fine. I'm fine. Why is he trying to psychoanalyze me? Like a little, yeah. a little more unresponsive and not as open. Um, have you ever faced that or ha been able to tackle that where a kid just wants to, I guess, not get in deep with their feelings with you? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. He just does the Cam Newton move. What was the name of that move? D dabs yeah, him. Just, just yeah. dab on, right? Yeah, that's all and, and everything's figured out. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's totally like um, a, a, just a great kind of point of when you know your kids, uh, your, your athletes, it's a matter of uh, the fine word honestly scares the crap out of me. Any Anybody that's married knows that if you get the response of, hey, how was your day? I'm fine. It's 
it's not, it's going to be an interesting night from there on out. <laughs> uh, but when, when an athlete does that to me, it just says, Hey, they're, they're not at the state right now to be able to process anything. So then I go back to, for me, um, proximity or proximity, meaning do they need me to be by them or do they need the space uh, to be able to process it? Do they? And so from there, I'm just thinking of the athletes I get to work with on a, almost a daily basis. It's very different from that. And so um, there's definitely amount of, A, when they go into that moment, there's a difference between a, a guest and a pest. And I guess I throw out when they're at that moment of the um, in the dungeon, the difference between a guest and a pest is an invitation. And I'll throw out a feeler mm-hmm. of like, hey, my heart posture, my relationship with you, hopefully, is that you trust me. Um, it seems like you're in the dungeon. Uh, is there anything anything you need from me? And if Sometimes they'll actually share and go into it. And if they say no, then I give them their space. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it seems like a, a an unproductive conversation if you're trying to like force them to be open and they're just annoyed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because they're already in the dungeon state. And so the, the logical reasoning part of their brain is more than likely either in overdrive or it's not activated because of the, just the emotional state they're in. And so it's almost a relief to, to our athletes when we create that space um, for that. Um, and then you've, you've defined the dungeon moment pretty clearly and given us some examples. I guess, can you just yeah. kind of take us through what the penthouse feels like and what maybe that ideal state should be, like when we're at our best playing in a match or, I guess, show, yeah. showing up? Yeah, no, and thanks for clarifying that because it's not like uh, the Pentos to me and the way that we define it is not when you've won the championship and feel like you could go conquer the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually argue that we're a little bit more in clutter. And so um, to me, the Pentos is about calm, that mentally we have a level of focus where things are in flow. And so um, that is how I define it. And, uh, I do think that we can influence where we are at. Um, the, when kids are, when I see myself spending more time in the dungeon or anybody else around me, the first three things that I'm looking at are sleep. Um, what are we sleeping? How are we sleeping? Stress. Uh, and then also the surroundings. So surroundings mean the people were around, uh, the environment that we're in. However, even when I've optimized all those things, I've still experienced uh, the dungeon moments. And so the Pentos moment is just when things are light, uh, they make sense, and there's a level of calm. And so uh, have you had one of those moments for either one of you when you've been playing lately where it was just things were just flowing? Yeah, I would say so. How would you describe it when you're playing, John? Um, I think what you're saying, yeah, that you're, um, I think it's just that, that you're just playing (laughs) and yeah, there's not as much, um, questioning and doubt and it's just, uh, yeah, I guess you're a lot more present and yeah, you just get, yeah, you're just competing. Yeah. You're just competing. And, and that's, um, and so even when you screw up in those penthouse moments, 
it's just easier to, you know, your next play speed is, is much, is it comes easier. And so that's how I define uh, that elusive penthouse uh, feeling. And what role does uh, self-talk play in both the dungeon and the penthouse moments? You know, it, for me, self-talk is just a, a very, um, it's an interesting part because it always, when I look at uh, the people, uh, for me, especially before getting into this work, when I got into the dungeon, um, that's where I went more internal. And so I would analyze my team. I would analyze um, where I was among other people. I would really go more introverted when I went into the dungeon. Then when I was in the penthouse, I was more free-flowing and, and life was happening. And so uh, self-talk is kind of that internal fuel of that navigation through those. And so um, what I think is crazy is just how much of a jerk all of us can be uh, to ourselves and yet how considerate and uh, helpful we can be to others. And so, um, you know, <laughs> love your neighbor like yourself, I think is a really, it's an interesting term uh, because so many people believe in it, but I can definitely see from the internal turmoil while so many, why so many of us uh, hate our neighbors is because <laughs> if we're loving our neighbor like ourselves, internally we kind of use ourselves as punching bags. And so um, the way that I look at self-talk is again, going back to the feelings as a compass. And so with where I want to get the athletes that I really train is, are these thoughts coming out of a fear state, which is the dungeon out of a scarcity moment of, you know, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to make it all of those things? Um, or is this self-talk coming out of uh, truth or out of clarity? And so if it's if it's in the dungeon moment, to me, it's that's a fear-based where our self-talk's coming to from, and uh, I've learned to let it go. And that's why I want to just train our athletes to is is don't do what is default, which is go introverted in the dungeon, but rather just let it process, let it go. And so um, the self-talk comes to you know, how are we with each other and practicing uh, calm conversations? And so have you guys um, read Steve Magnus's stuff? No. So he's fantastic. He's uh, in, I'm into distance running and, um, and he's one of the, probably the best distance, run, distance running coach, one of them in the in America right now. And he's out of Houston and he wrote a book called peak performance. Um, but uh, it, it's fantastic. And he really, he works really hard with his athletes on, and he coined it calm conversations of just, okay. As, as I hear these, these thoughts of self doubt, this talk, um, if I just listen to myself, it might be total self berating, but at some point I have to just talk to myself instead of listen. And that's where it's kind of learning to have calm conversations in those moments of, uh, in the moments of tension, which uh, which is interesting too, because when you think about what precedes some of the greatest moments of your life, uh, the moments that you remember the most are self-doubt, are thoughts that most people would call negative thoughts or fear-based thoughts. Um, and instead of viewing them as there's something wrong with me, uh, 
because of, you know, what we know is that, well, the lizard's fired up. This part of your brain that doesn't want you to be exposed is telling you to get the hell out. Like, don't take the risk that instead those thoughts, those gremlins of, uh, I don't belong here. Um, I'm not ready. I'm too whatever. I'm not blank enough. Those are just signals that we're on the right track. And so for self-talk, for me, it's understanding what does it mean? Um, instead of like, you know, I'm not a, a huge, huge believer in positive talk and all this excess extra stuff, but I am a believer in understanding the root of where our thoughts and self-talk come from and then practicing just calm conversations. Hmm. I, I like that. <clears throat> so I wanted to uh, shift gears and, and get into some of your core principles. Uh, yeah. Would you mind first telling us what they are? Sure. I mean, when you when you look at um, core principles, to me, it's uh, the idea of like a, uh, you know, the idea of like a plane. If a plane takes off from New York, uh, headed to the West Coast and is just off one degree, it's going to it's going to miss its final target by many, many miles. And all a pilot does is just continually re-nudge and rebring that plane back on, on course. And so for me, my principles serve as things that I full-heartedly believe in uh, through the dungeon moments. And so they're my anchor points that I have of, all right, when I get off track, here's what nudges me back. Um, so some of my principles are there. And we, um, my partner, uh, trained to be clutch, uh, Jamie Gilbert, uh, it's Joshua Medcalf, Jamie Gilbert, and myself, he wrote an entire book called The Principal Circle, which is about um, just defining what are the things that keep me in line. Uh, and so I, I have a few of them um, that I really like, but uh, my top one is your value comes from who you are, uh, not from what you do. Another one is the, the hardest. Uh, sometimes we have to let go of the easy yes to the good things in order, uh, or sorry, we have to say no uh, to the good things in order to be able to say yes to the great things. Um, uh, and a third one is in order to, uh, if we're going to commit to being great, we have to be able to work through the fear of being different. I like those. So the one that, that I really jumps out at me is your value comes from who you are and not what you do. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, especially in sports, you know, athletes and coaches see it the other way around. Mm -hmm. So, so why do you think it's this way? Why is it more about, especially in sport, like, isn't it about the result? And yeah, winning? I mean, I feel like those are hard words, even out of your mouth, John, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you like choked them out. <laughs> um, but when you, to me, this came again, when I started teaching the growth and the fixed mindset of how would you guys describe people in the fixed mindset um, that you see, you know, that avoid risk, that are just, that live in that mindset? What words would you guys use to describe them as characteristics, kind of? Protective. Um, I mean, fearful, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, just think of someone not putting their neck out there, kind of playing it safe yeah absolutely and uh, billy how does that sound for you yeah it's right on and so well, when i look at like the root of the growth and the fixed mindset um 
it's out of fear. It's scarcity. It's defensive. It's all those words. And, you know, we could flip them then for the growth mindset is if I'm learning and growing, it's out of, it's out of trust. It's out of, um, knowing that regardless of what I do, regardless of my result, that I'm anchored, that I'm valued and that I matter. And so, um, (laughs) When we go into the dungeon, it's interesting because I've heard a lot of things. I'll ask people, like, how do you know you're going to be all right? And it might be things like, you know, I'm going to be all right because I've I've got a lot of money. You know, I'm going to be all right because I have a really supportive family. I'm going to be all right. And all these things that come up that can be taken away from you in a heartbeat. And so – when I look at that value statement, um, for me, it's a, it has to do with faith. Um, for other people, it can just be a, just a really strong belief in what it means to be, to be human, to be a person, that you infinitely matter regardless of what you uh, can add to a score. And what's crazy is just the freeing effect of when we shift that role, that our value comes from just being us. Um, it puts kind of a dagger right through things like perfectionism, it puts a dagger through things of, of fear. And, and so I spend a lot of time working uh, with people in one-on-one settings at the highest level down to the lowest about where do you derive your, your personal worth. And if it's on something that can be taken away from you, uh, in a heartbeat, then a lot of times we're somebody when we're winning and then we're a nobody when we're not. And so, um, really pulling the reins back and being very intentional about where do I get my personal worth from, I believe is the fuel power that then can keep us in, uh, the green of the growth mindset. So what if we, is it okay to still like celebrate, you know, when, when they're doing well and be bummed when, like, especially as a coach, you know, how do we, how do we avoid this trap? Cause I feel like, yeah, if we're playing poorly, we're, we're a little more disappointed and we're playing well. So we're kind of setting them up to go that route. Like, Oh, well he or she only cares, you know, about me when I'm performing at a high level. Well, and that's the thing is I think when we experience is, do you only care about your kids when they're performing at a high level? And I mean, yeah, some, but uh, (laughs) maybe some coaches would say that. But to me, the dungeon moments are those moments where you have a brief opportunity as a coach to make a lifelong impact. And when you think back to the coaches that you still respect to this day, a lot of times it was because of the actions and the person that they were in the dungeon. And, um, And so with that being said, it's, I believe that we can experience the ray of emotion going all in with kids and and athletes um, and being happy when we succeed and, and being fully vulnerable of hurt when we fail, but they still know regardless that you love them. And, you know, it's, it's at the end of the year when uh, you, you tell them that, or that you really care about them or that it was more about the team. And they look back at you and say, I know, um, where it was like, okay, they did get it. Um, and so to me, it's just a very separate playing field and a feel within a group when they know you care more about them as a person than as an athlete. Doesn't mean you don't want them, uh, to experience success both for themselves and you personally, but in the end, their value is bigger than, uh, 
how well they can hit a, a round ball around. So how do you how do you do this as a coach? How do you show that you care more about them as a person? Like what are the what are the moments you can you can do that in? Yeah, I, I, for me it's listening. Um, just by by practicing that skill of listening to your to your group, um, you're giving them just incredible benefit. You're showing them that so many of the belonging cues are tied in with listening of, and when I say listening, I view it kind of as three levels. Level one is just distracted listening, which we suck at with phones and everything else. Level two is when we flip everything to just what we're going to say um, and how we turn it into, you know, more hijacking the conversation using I, using um, me, and then level three is really about being present with that person and drawing out what they don't even know is within them. And so as a coach, what that means to me is time. Like that takes time and is a very, it's difficult, uh, especially when you have so many things going on that could be using your time. And so listening to them and knowing them at a deeper level than, you know, just volleyball or their sports and, uh, knowing about their family, knowing about their their triggers, their what stresses them out, you know, and things along that nature is where I believe uh, that comes from. So, should John's van ride home after a game sound different or feel different after a win versus a loss? I, I mean, I think it's just the natural way of um, accepting that. Hey feeling is an uncontrollable factor and uh, you're going to naturally get the all the great things that go along with getting an accomplishment so um the way it feels is absolutely not like i think it'd be crazy um to hey we're going to be silent on the ride home and the way here no matter what or after a tough loss like we need to get jacked up and let it roll um but i think there can be an underlying principle of of love in either one of those situations. So we can still stop for in and out, even if we lost. <laughs> hey, if that's how you guys celebrate, you know, a little in and out. Roll uh, they don't have in and out in Green Bay, Billy. Oh, sorry, sorry. The, uh, we are we are starting to get Chick Fil A. So, uh, that's not the same. Uh, Lucas, th- thanks for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit more? I guess we never really plugged Train to Be Clutch. Uh, what is it? What are you guys up to? Yeah, so Train to Be Clutch. Um, we're just. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting to put a finger on exactly what we do, but I like to call what we're working for is just helping people find freedom uh, from the mental side of things to navigate uh, the dungeon and the penthouse moments alike. And so, um, yeah, uh, what we're up to is a wide variety of things from doing workshops with uh, amazing teams like, like John's. And, uh, you know, one thing I didn't bring up was just, the way that I can get a really good vibe on a, a team is when I get to go work there uh, and leave feeling and like kind of coming up with my mind of like, you know what, it won't be so bad to live here. Huh, I wonder if my wife Katie would be interested in, in potentially moving out here. Like I bet Let's I could probably work something out, yeah. you know, to yeah. that. But like it doesn't happen often. But when I went to LMU, that was, you know, the type of feel. And when, when that feel just tells me there's just, there's something about this group. And so, um, I get to, you know, at train to be clutch, uh, see 60 to 70 different groups. And, um, and so what we're doing is doing workshops, doing one-on-one mentoring, things like that to, uh, help people 
uh, continue to grow. And on the flip side, can you tell us from your visit to LMU all the things John was doing wrong? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> bring up my document that? that I didn't get here. <laughs> uh, no, it was uh, it was just a really cool visit. To um, I think a lot of times what, what happens with the coaches is you get on your island of excellence. And as coaches, we're always think you know looking at where can we grow, where can we grow. And the the awesome thing that I get to see is just uh, bring and is how far ahead some programs are than others. And uh, you know, so I know that there's something that John would be quick to say that they're really working on, but. Uh, when it comes to this stuff in my uh, in my field of high performance, uh, a lot of good things are going on there. Well, thanks, Lucas. And we'll we'll find you a house here by the beach and get you to be with us more often. So talk to your wife. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't that that uh, that might not be an argument. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was saying before the show. Um, We've got to work with a lot of great uh, people who work with the mental side of the game at LMU, and mm-hmm. our girls really loved working with you, and we're looking forward to continuing to work with you, and I've learned a ton. So I'm glad that more people can hear this and learn from you, and um, I think uh, you just do a great job of communicating and making you know, these moments, like the dungeon moments, um, more understandable, and I think it's going to help a lot of athletes and coaches. So thanks for all your work. I, no, I really appreciate you guys creating the environment so that I, I can do my work and what sets my soul on fire. So uh, thank you guys for, for doing this uh, and putting this resource out there for, for everybody. And uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Coach Your Brains Out. You can follow us on Twitter at Coach Your Brain or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coach Your Brains Out. If you like the show, please write us a review and spread the word.